towards the end of that long and now famous night under the Bodhi tree, after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially obstructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of aversion, of desire, delusion, at Siddhartha Gotama, the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, accompanied with the words, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here where and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyways? The Bodhisattva, the just-about-to-be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation, of exploration, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced with the deep power and the cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gotama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and a balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisattva, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to return to the Buddha. And so we said, maybe not always quite exactly like the Buddha, but we sit, we practice. We sit, we walk, practicing here in retreat over weeks and for some of you over many months. And all of you, all of us, have practiced and will most likely practice intensively again in other places, at other times, alone and with others. Our aspirations, our determinations, 
are sometimes quite strong and quite clear. Sometimes they pale. And maybe even sometimes they're forgotten. But certainly many, many times they're remembered. As we do practice over the years, through this lifetime, the seven qualities or factors of mind and heart that were so perfectly matured, unfabricated, unprompted, and at at that amazing point in time, all perfectly in place, when Siddhartha that night under the tree sat and woke up. As we practice these capacities or positive factors of mind continue to grow. They continue to deepen. They continue to develop. They continue to mature. And they continue to be known within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we keep practicing. This evening, and for the next few evening talks that I'll be offering, we'll touch into these capacities, these seven enlightenment factors. Mindfulness, investigation or discernment, as it's sometimes called, energy and effort, joy, concentration, tranquility, and the enlightenment factor of equanimity. All of which, as as the Buddha states, are supported by seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, and ripen into relinquishment, meaning the giving up or the letting go into, entering into liberation, entering into Nibbana. Over these next few evening talks, we'll be touching into and exploring these factors from two particular two related perspectives. That of our direct experience and our cultivation or prompting of these qualities through our ongoing practice. And the great power of protection and healing that these factors bring as they take root and as they develop within us, as you've all been practicing over these weeks and months. And we'll also touch into these factors from the perspective of the experience of their unfabricated, unprompted presence as aspects of the mind, the heart, of non-clinging, as aspects of the liberated mind, the liberated heart. The Buddha taught the seven factors of enlightenment from the standpoint of them being like seven precious gems. And it's said that during the time of the Buddha, with 
giving a dedicated and concentrated attention to the teachings of these factors and also in the recitation of them. Certain degrees of protection and kinds of healing were experienced amongst the nuns and the monks, nuns, the, mo- the nuns and the monks in the Buddha's uh, students. At one point, a certain monk asked the Buddha, factors of enlightenment, factors of enlightenment, in what sense are they called factors of enlightenment? And this was the Buddha's response. They lead to enlightenment, bhikkhu. Therefore, they're called factors of enlightenment. One develops the factor of mindfulness, which is based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing in release. And then the Buddha goes on through all the seven factors in this same way. And then he continues. When one is developing these seven factors, one's mind is liberated from the taint of sensuality, from the taint of existence or becoming, we might call it, from the taint of ignorance, delusion. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It's liberated. One understands, destroyed is birth. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There's no more for this state of being, meaning there's no more suffering. They lead to enlightenment, bhikkhu. Therefore, they're called the factors of enlightenment. There is a particular thing that Sayadaw Upandita has said, which has really been quite a touch point and an important reminder for me many times over the years. So I'd like to begin our exploration uh, with this. He said that most people think that everything begins here, and he tapped himself on the head. And then he said, but I've been checking for a long, long time. And he said, I found that everything begins here. And he tapped himself on the chest at his heart center, actually kind of thumped his heart center. Everything begins and ends. If I do it here, it makes too much noise, with the, but begins and ends here. The heart center. Krishnamurti had another way of expressing it. He said, meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. But when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. This meditation cannot be learned from another. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. As we touch into these qualities, these factors of enlightenment, you might offer yourself the possibility of letting the words be a touch point or a a pointing out towards directly connecting with each one, or maybe at least some of these factors within yourself, which from my own experience is 
facilitated by what we might call listening from the heart, not from the head. I've also found that it's quite helpful to let oneself relax deeply in through the body. Taking a moment or two to really relax from head to toe, dropping into the body with a very bright attention and letting this attention move down through the body. Deeply relaxed and brightly alert at the same time. Letting the whole body, mind, and heart deeply relax into the hearing. This evening we'll explore just the first factor, the factor of mindfulness. The four foundations or establishments of mindfulness as an enlightenment factor. I think of mindfulness as the mother of all of the factors of enlightenment. In a sense, it's, it's the one that gives birth in a, in a certain way to all of the others. Without it, the others wouldn't arise as factors of enlightenment. And with its blossoming and establishment, mindfulness is the factor that really offers us the greatest protection. In Pali, the word for mindfulness is sati. And sometimes it's translated as memory or to remember. To remember, reconnect, to connect, or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. Attention directed directly into the present moment. I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our strong habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but rather to remain resting in our habits to remain resting in a kind of inertia. Some years ago, in a, in a Dharma discussion with some friends, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual experience? What makes mindfulness a spiritual experience? The great intimacy of mindfulness this moment's experiences, experience as this. Just this much. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, mouth, tongue, touch, heart, mind. Absolutely believing our body and mind. what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, 
immediate mindful awareness. With sometimes the truth appearing so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. So again, Krishnamurti's instruction, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. The mindfulness that the Buddha instructs us towards asks asks us not to remain resting in our habits, to not remain in a kind of inertia, but to meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come close, really close, and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't float or kind of skim along on the surface of things. It connects with, and it goes right into the object. And yet at the same time, it's not a fixed or sticky kind of connection. Mindful attention is a clear, fluid connection that lights on an object just long enough to know it. It's this flavor that allows a penetrating investigation and a clear comprehension of whatever it connects with. Mindfulness can be called the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, a purely receptive relationship to whatever phenomena is presenting itself in this present moment. So mindfulness doesn't think, I'm doing this or... I'm doing that. The moment that we think I'm doing this or I'm doing that, we become self-conscious. And we're creating, or we could say recreating, a sense of self. We're living in an idea, we might say. The idea of I, the idea of me. This factor of mind, mindfulness, is about actually about living in the action, living in the present moment's experience. In a sense, we forget about ourself. We lose our self, we could say, in what is. And so there's just this, just what is, without adding anything to it, or without needing to add anything to it, without taking away anything from it, without needing to take anything away from it. There are four 
domains or establishments, as it's often called, of mindfulness. The Buddha talked about it as four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness here and now. Our first domain is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. Not one's feelings or ideas or concerns or emotions about it. And of course there are many uh, and varied aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. And as we all know, one of our primary orientations to the body through our practice of mindfulness is mindfulness of breathing. And I just have to say that, um, because I think there's sometimes some misunderstanding about this, that breath as an object of our mindful attention is not just a beginner's instruction or a beginner's way of practicing. Hopefully, we're always beginners, in fact. (laughs) The understanding that's accessible via this mode of mindfulness is potentially really quite profound. Having sat with Sayadaw Upandita again uh, this spring, after many years of not being with him, and with his direction of making the rising and the falling movement of the breath in the belly, a basic ground of mindful attention. I was at times very deeply grateful and even awed at the depth and the breadth of what there is to be known with this simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breathing happening. So with breath, we might at times particularly notice each breath, each inhalation, each exhalation directly as sensation or as movement in the particular area of the body where we connect with the breath. Maybe noticing it right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to its end, to its cessation actually noticing the ending, the cessation of a breath. And then the beginning of the next inhalation. Or we might simply notice the in and out breath, breathing itself, so to say. Basically just this. Which tends to cultivate an increasingly quiet and tranquil and peaceful breathing, and an all-over body and mind, quieting and calm and tranquility. One of the instructions to me during the retreat with Sayadaw this spring was, let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the rising and falling without any self involved, I was told. Or then it was modified, (laughs) or with as little self as possible. 
mindfully absorb into the rising and falling without any self-involved. Are you attempting to control or direct the breath? Noticing this. Noticing it without judgment, without self-recrimination. In a moment of seeing clearly, there's often relief. A friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. So the body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures. Not our ordinary, everyday way of natural noticing and natural awareness of our bodily activity but a close, intimate, and more constant and careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and in all the movements of the body, getting up, down, flexing and extending the arms and the legs, carrying things, falling asleep, waking up. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone? Is there a me? Is there an I behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be known simply as just standing? Sitting is just simply sitting. Walking is just simply walking. Without the layer of I am or the internal feeling of this is me walking, this is me sitting. Once, um, many years ago, Sayadaw asked me, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking or standing or sitting or any bodily movements or sensations? Is there a woman or a man or a person there, here? For just a brief moment when he asked that question, I was kind of caught in the question, which in retrospect was, I think, a kind of test for me, a test of my practice at that time. But very quickly, there was a spontaneous reflection and then a response to Sayadaw. No, no, there's, there's no woman, no man, no anybody when I'm directly connected and mindfully and mindful of walking or or whatever phenomena is happening. So a question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful attention of the body and the body, we might also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions 
that every single moment of experience arises out of. For instance, the intention to, followed by the action. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, where the energy of volition begins where it starts from in our body. I, or you, me, I, don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way decide to stand or sit or stay sitting or take the next step. If we act from the place of separateness, of isolation, we will eventually, or maybe very quickly, experience some degree of suffering. The postures and the movements of the body are just as dependent or interdependent on conditions They arise dependent on conditions just as does, for instance, the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin or the liking or the disliking of some experience. Choices are made, but they're a product of the play of various conditions in any given moment. The next aspect of mindfulness of the body as a body that the Buddha suggests, actually he doesn't suggest, uh, but he really quite strongly directs us towards, is giving attention to the parts of the body. And he talks about all 32 of them, which I'm not going to go through, but (laughs) just a few here. Hair, skin, various organs, and in our, in our case here, um, most likely they make themselves known, certain ones make themselves known, such as uh, the stomach or the bladder, maybe the liver, the gallbladder, certainly the heart, maybe the lungs. And I have no doubt that we certainly do notice many parts of our body during retreat. But how often do we notice them in a mindful way? How identified, for instance, are we with the hair on our head or the lack of it? Or the hair on our body, for instance? How do we attend to the experiences of our stomach or our colon and the digestive process therein? or to a a moment or many moments experiencing the heart? How do we experience moments in relationship to the skin, this bag of skin that holds all the various contents of the body? How often do we experience our nails, our teeth, our saliva, 
sweat or any part of our bodily body or bodily experience with what I like to call an extraordinary, the extraordinary qualities of mindful attention. A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body, without the layers of feelings, ideas, concerns, or emotions about it. Just the body as a body. This is from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, she or, or he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi abides, contemplating the body as a body. Another aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different than any other matter, no different than any other form. Our human form is of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. Again, potentially a kind of non-ordinary way of cutting through the I am identification when we begin to see this. We might touch into it directly, not conceptually, but directly through seeing and knowing the experiences, for instance, of a sense of denseness or solidity or hardness or softness or heaviness or lightness or through mindful attention to the cohesion and the flow within the experiences of the body and in the movements of the body also. Or we might know it via the experiences of heat and cold in a very direct, intimate way. Or maybe in connection to the experience of distension or rising or filling with the in-breath and the falling or the emptying with the out-breath. How intimately, how mindfully connected are we to these kinds of experiences in our body? The last instruction from the Buddha in relation to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Not something that we have much of an opportunity to do uh, in a retreat setting such as this. Though, (laughs) there are various kinds of corpses around to observe at times. Insects, maybe birds, and even the corpses of plants and flowers. All forms of life are mortal. 
All forms are mortal. They have the nature to die and to decompose. So it's possible to observe this directly in some ways. I've, I've been in retreat um, at various times and in various places and quite purposefully observed the process of roses and of grasses as they die and they go through all of the changes that things go through after they die. And once when I was on retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod where we rented a house for a couple of months to practice together, I I had the great good fortune, um, good fortune only in some circles, uh, I had the great good fortune to come upon a dead seal that was on the beach. So every day for a month, I walked down to that body and I sat with it for a little while, every day while noticing the process of decomposition and decay, which in this instance was happening actually quite quickly by being uh, aided and abetted by the birds who found the seal's flesh to be very delicious food. It isn't about being morbid or being kind of strange or weird in some way. Every living form is mortal. And we're so attached to forms. Our own form and that of others. And for many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire. A desire for an attachment to the forms that please us or the forms that are beautiful to us, or the forms that might be amusing or interesting to us, or just simply to familiar forms. And what is actually kind of strange and amazing is that we go on thinking and acting as if we and they won't change, won't die. which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting closely, clearly, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or not-so-subtle tension and stress in us. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through this state of suffering. How do we know the body? How do we know this first foundation or establishment of mindfulness? As we pay a closer, more intimate, mindful attention to the subtleties of the actions of the body and the subtleties of the experiences within the body and their interrelatedness, we may begin to see and to understand the role of volition, where it comes from, 
and in a non-conceptual way, touch, come to know the deeper and subtler cause of suffering, which can open our heart to an unimaginable expanse in relation to all beings. Through a clear, connected attention to this first domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, in the body, we may come to touch, if only for a moment, the end of suffering, which opens our heart and mind to an unimaginable experience of ease, of peace, and well-being, which is really just simply our natural possibility, our natural human potential. One of the things that I was most drawn to in my early years of Buddhist exploration was uh, that the teachings and the practices aren't a dry intellectual kind of undertaking. And for me, this was really very important, not being a particularly intellectual type. The other piece that um, drew me early on was that the Buddha doesn't ask us to take up a system of belief and then blindly follow it. On the contrary, the topic, so to say, of practice is ourself, our own body-mind process. So we're taking an interest in our body, in our mind, as a way to come to understand our own true nature. This was of great appeal to me in my younger years. It still is. (laughs) It's a very lively, very potent engagement rather than a dry, cerebral endeavor. In relation to the four establishments of mindfulness, a potential particularly illuminating aspect of practice for us is when the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral become more directly and more immediately known in relation to the experiences that come in through each of the sense doors. When we really begin to connect with and see these feelings that are produced through the contact of the sense doors with various phenomena. For most of us, in response to either physical or mental stimuli, there very quickly arise feelings of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, which can be described as the experience of things being neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And of course, when the uh, feeling is pleasant in relation to physical or mental contact with some object, most of us experience an emotional quick an emotional attachment or when the pleasant feeling subsides craving arises we want we want to experience it again or more of it or get it back and then what's our mental state 
Is it still pleasant? The mind and the heart are in a state of dissatisfaction at that point. Our, our mental peace has been disturbed. We've lost our sense of well-being in that moment. The nature of dissatisfaction is agitation, a kind of inner restlessness. When we experience unpleasant feelings in relation to any physical or mental contact with some object, again, for most people, there's an immediate, or we could say almost an automatic, emotional state of dislike. And we want to get rid of it, or we want to get away from it, or we want it to get away from us. We, want, we don't want the feeling, or we don't want the object, or we don't want both. So aversion has arisen. Again, disturbing our mental peace. And for many of us, when the feeling of neither pleasant nor unpleasant what is called neutral, our tendency is to ignore what's going on and not connect with the present moment's experience and maybe accompanied by a state of not wanting or wanting something else. Not wanting to connect with and see reality in that moment. I think that most of us are intense experience junkies. So when things aren't very potently pleasant or unpleasant, when they're sort of neutral, we tend to ignore a lot. We don't even notice. Or we look for something more potent, more interesting. So unless we're intimately and carefully mindful, whatever feelings arise, pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, they have the potential to disturb us emotionally. They have the potential to cause us to suffer. An amazing thing about these feelings is that we often forget that they change. The very same or similar object that produced a pleasant feeling in our mind, within moments sometimes, produces an unpleasant feeling in the mind. And so again, we might experience attachment, clinging. Forgetting is the opposite of remembering, remembering. The connection that mindfulness offers to see things just as they are. A number of years ago, when I was sitting a three-month retreat over at IMS, some of you uh, know that place, and in the little dining room in the back, there are a bunch of shelves on one wall where yogis stash particularly important things. So I had a stash on, in one little corner. One day there was a note on top of my stash from a person whose stash was right next to mine. I, hadn't, I didn't know who it was. I hadn't noticed who that person was. The note, great pleasant feeling. I was noticed. I felt delight. 
someone was paying attention to me, noticed me in this vast silence. So I wrote a note back. The next day I got another note on top of my stash. I still didn't know who this person was. The second note was offering me some green tea from this person's belongings. Well, not as pleasant a feeling, but I liked green tea, so I wrote a note back and said thank you and took some of the tea, a tea bag and had some green tea. The next day I got another note. There was an immediate aversion with the third note. I felt impinged upon. And there was a quick reaction in the mind of writing back a not-so-polite note. But fortunately, um, mindfulness and discernment uh, kicked in pretty quickly, and I didn't write back a sharp note. I just simply relaxed, let go, and I didn't respond at all, in fact. And the note stopped at that point. At the end of that retreat, um, that person and I had a conversation uh, about that, uh, those few days. And he told me that he had gone through a similar process and was very grateful after going through some inner turmoil that I didn't answer the last note. He was very glad not to write back another note himself. As I'm sure you would all agree with, when we feel pleasant and unpleasant as a result of contact with some object, the pleasant and unpleasantness isn't in the external object or within the internal object of attention if we're paying attention to something within our own body-mind process. The feelings in the mind. So why do we feel this way? In my three-month story, the the feeling and the subsequent uh, action of answering the first two notes and then the reaction in my mind with the third note were clearly coming from a place of self, a place of me. When we begin to see that all of the feelings we experience are within us, that we ourselves are actually mainly responsible for the feelings that we experience, we begin to know that we really can't blame others for the way that we feel. What for many of us is our habituated storyline, like he made me feel angry, or she made me feel terrible, or this place, or these people make me feel miserable, or make me feel great. As we begin to pay a careful attention to the feelings that arise, the habituated storylines actually begin to lose their strength. They begin to fall apart. In the light of seeing things clearly, putting the blame 
on others for our feelings actually isn't realistic. It's not the way things really work. The potential illuminating aspect of practice in relation to cultivating a careful attention to the feeling is that it's at this point in our experience that we have a potentially direct and immediate opportunity to drop our habituated reactions of attachment, of clinging, and the various permutations of aversion. It's at this point in our experience of noticing the feelings of pleasant, the feelings of unpleasant, the feelings of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that we can sometimes just see the phenomena, know the attendant feelings, and that just be that. It's in that moment that there's no mental suffering. The heart, the mind, aren't disturbed in that moment. It's a moment of ease. It's a moment of peace. So this is the second establishment of mindfulness. Contemplation of the feelings simply in themselves. The feelings in the feelings. Mindfulness has the capacity to connect directly and simply with consciousness, with knowing itself, what we could call the bare awareness aspect of our experience. Sometimes we may experience just this, but at times, and and actually maybe quite often, the knowing of knowing And the simple knowing of phenomena may almost immediately be colored or modified by various factors or states of mind. So this being the third foundation of the establishment of mindfulness. States of mind, the mind in the mind. So for instance, we we go into the marketplace. We've got a few marketplaces here the marketplace of the lunch food display, the marketplace of where to do walking meditation this hour or the next hour, or which shirt to put on today, that marketplace. In Taos, New Mexico, where I live, um, many people come to Taos for the marketplace itself there just to see it, because there's a tremendous amount of beauty that abounds in that place. I've sometimes walked down the street at home looking in all of the shop windows and watched my mind, seeing, seeing shapes, seeing colors, forms, just that bare attention of seeing. And then the coloration, of leaning into, of wanting, even sometimes a very strong desire of a seeming need for something 
in the marketplace. Greed, coloring a moment's experience of seeing. A great practice in the midst of whatever marketplace we happen to be in in any given moment. And the marketplace of our inner world of meditation, a moment of deep calm, a mindful moment of directly knowing this calm. No thought about it. Just it as it is. Just calm, just tranquility. But then maybe very quickly followed by grasping, by wanting it to never leave. Mindfulness then can know the mental factor, mental factors or colorations of the mind, of wanting, of greed, within the greed itself, within the wanting itself, or the mental factor, the colorations of hatred, or anger, or fear, or delusion. Any state of mind can be known in itself, how it acts, its changing flavors, and its cessation. A moment of consciousness might be colored by faith or by understanding or maybe by sleepiness or maybe by distraction. As we've experienced each of these mental factors, these colorations that may arise in relationship to the bare awareness of any given experience, such as a breath or a sensation or a sound or a taste, can be known. Even the fact that there's knowing that consciousness itself manifests, arises and passes moment by moment itself, this can be experienced and known directly with a careful, mindful attention. In the Abhidhamma, the very detailed and very precise treatise on Buddhist psychology, there are quite a number of uh, different types of consciousnesses listed and described in great detail. And it's really not at all necessary uh, to differentiate and be able to name all of these. Most of us, or at least I speak for myself, uh, don't have that kind of mind that inclines in this direction, this perception of such incredibly minute detail of experience. I think it's quite enough for us to be aware of the more ordinary or usually experienced colorations of any given moment of consciousness. These colorations that are present through the mental factors that accompany consciousness. Mindfulness, knowing that there's sleepiness, distraction, fear, delight, faith, calm, anger. And again, the essential nature of mindfulness is that there's not an attitude of judging or discriminating between right or wrong or good or bad. It's just this in this moment, whatever it is, 
within mindfulness itself, there's no grasping, there's no rejecting, and there's no manipulation of experience. So this third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, or mental factors, states of mind in themselves. The last aspect of mindfulness is what is called mindfulness or contemplation of dhammas, sometimes called contemplation of mind objects, which can be mindful awareness grounded, for instance, in the six six sense doors. Hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, seeing, thinking. Or mindful awareness grounded, for instance, in the five hindrances. Sleepiness, restlessness, agitation, doubt, or the wanting mind, or the aversive mind. Mindfulness of dhammas or objects of mind can also be grounded in the Four Noble Truths. In relationship to our exploration this evening, we can take particular interest in mindfulness grounded in the seven factors of enlightenment. These factors themselves, and in the specifics of this evening's talk, attention being given to the first factor, the factor of mindfulness itself. Mindfulness of dhammas is both in the realm of physical phenomena and in the realm of mental phenomena. Dhamma or or dhammas, in this case, can be translated as the truth. The truth or the way of things, the natural laws, the dhamma of things. So from this perspective, all things, Every single experience, every single phenomena is Dhamma. Each and every, all of it, all of it holds the truth. The Dhamma of the way of things is within everything, simply there to be seen, to be known, if we just take the time to look. The truth is right here for us to see directly through every sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body and mind, and within each and all phenomena that's happening everywhere around us. This is spoken of in some schools, as some Buddhist schools, as within samsara is nirvana. Within the whirlpool of samsara, if we stand still, so to say, cool, calm, focused, mindfully attentive, we're no longer conditioned by ignorance, by ignoring. We're no longer conditioned and caught in the whirlpool, for instance, of pleasant and unpleasant, and I like it or I don't like it. No longer caught in continually moving around and around the wheel, no longer caught 
unaware in the whirl of one thing leading to the other. In the midst of samsara, we can stop and pay attention, pay an extraordinary kind of attention, a mindful attention, and wake up. These knowings can and do arise in any given moment of mindfulness. When we give a wholehearted attention to our experience, this is our possibility. And this is from the Buddha. So she or he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects internally, contemplating mind objects as mind objects externally, contemplating mind objects both internally and externally. She abides contemplating the arising of mind objects and abides contemplating the vanishing, disappearance of mind objects, contemplating both arising and vanishing, disappearing objects of mind. Or else mindfulness that there are objects of mind is present to him just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. And she abides independent, detached, not grasping, not clinging to anything in the world. That yogi's is how a yogi abides, contemplating mind objects as mind objects in respect to the seven factors of enlightenment. I sometimes think of mindfulness as magic. It's certainly not the magic uh, that uh, the magician creates through illusion and then pulls us into this delusion. The magic of mindfulness takes us out of the illusion, takes us out of the delusion, takes us directly into reality. Krishnamurti said that if we don't know what it is, what meditation is, what mindfulness is, we're like a totally blind person in a world of bright color, shadows, and moving light. And from another perspective, this is a quote from Nan Shin. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. So this first factor of enlightenment, mindfulness. Our relationship to this quality of awareness as a factor of enlightenment is that we know when it's present within us. We know when it's not present, when it's absent. We know how this factor of enlightenment comes to arise and how the development, the development of it comes about. I'd like to uh, close the talk with just a little dialogue between the Buddha and one of his monks. This was a question to the Buddha from one of his monks. 
what is the benefit that Master Gautama lives for? And the Buddha responded, the Tathagata lives for the benefit and fruit of true knowledge and liberation. And the monk said, but Master Gotama, what things, when developed and cultivated, fulfill true knowledge and liberation? And the Buddha responded, the seven factors of enlightenment, when developed and cultivated, fulfill true knowledge and liberation. And the monk But Master Gautam, what things, when developed and cultivated, fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment? The Buddha. The four establishments of mindfulness, when developed and cultivated, fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment. And then the Buddha goes on to speak to the monk about cultivating good conduct, sila, and restraint in relation to fulfilling the four establishments of mindfulness. And then does what he often does uh, in his discourses. He asks a question and then answers it himself. He says, and how are the four establishments of mindfulness developed and cultivated so that they fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment? A monk dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardently, clearly comprehending and mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. She dwells contemplating feelings in feelings, mind in mind, phenomena or dhammas, objects of mind in phenomena, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. It is this way that the four establishments of mindfulness are developed and cultivated so that they fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment. In closing with a, another statement from the Buddha, monks, just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, so too, when a yogi develops and cultivates the seven factors of enlightenment, he or she slants, slopes, and inclines toward Nibbana. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.